You're listening to a Sun Life podcast. We pray that you be blessed by the teaching of God's word. For more information, visit sunlife.org.au. Enjoy the sermon. Morning, everyone. I know if you're confused, you probably think it's Pastor Ben up here, but we happen to be wearing the same clothes today. So <laughs> I did that intentionally, right? So you'd think it's Pastor Ben preaching. And, um, but uh, look, what a joy and a privilege it is to bring you the Word of God uh, this morning. Thank you, thank you, Pastor. Thank you, uh, Simon, for the, the opportunity. Um, and there, there is a lot to get through this morning because we're going through 18 verses of, of Mark chapter 11. And uh, Daryl set it up so beautifully last week when, when we looked at Jesus entering Jerusalem. Uh, and I wanted just to continue on from where he left off last week. But uh, before we get into the word, why don't we just pray? Father, we thank you that uh, we have the, the freedom, the privilege and the opportunity to come into church this morning where many countries in the world, they don't, Lord God, that we can gather as, as your body and that we come to listen to the word of God, that you may uh, edify us, build us up uh, and uh, help us to look more and more like Jesus this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. God is so good, hey? Isn't he so good to us? Um, who knows, who knows uh, this morning that Jesus was a rabbi? Who knows that he was a Jewish rabbi? And, uh, but Jesus wasn't just a rabbi. Jesus was the goat of rabbis, right? He was the greatest of all time. I've only just learned that. I learned that from Pastor Ben, right? He was the goat. There was no rabbi better than Jesus. In order to be a rabbi, Jesus and, and rabbis needed to know Leviticus by heart by the age of six. We struggle with one verse, but Jesus had to learn Leviticus by the age of six. To be a rabbi, you needed to know the entire Torah by the age of 12. And at 12, if you knew the Torah, you had the right to sit an exam to carry on your rabbinical studies. And the exam wasn't that they would ask you questions. It was actually the opportunity for the person studying to ask questions of the Pharisees and, and the leaders. And the questions they would ask would demonstrate their ability to continue a conversation about God. Who, remember, who knows their Bible? Who remembers? Where, where was Jesus at the age of 12 when he left his parents? So if you got through all of that, you continued your training between 12 and 30, and at 30 you graduated rabbi school, and you were baptised at that point, and, from, and, and at your baptism, if you had two witnesses confirming uh, your, your position as a rabbi, you were able to have your own authority. And we're going to look at the authority of Jesus later in this passage. But that authority that the rabbis were given was also called their yoke. Again, who knows their Bible? My, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Think about it. Jesus came to give us a new yoke, a new way. And his ways, beautiful, light. And uh, from 30 years old, a rabbi was able to start calling disciples. And that's, what this, that's the heartbeat of this church, isn't it? Calling disciples. And rabbis would simply call disciples with two words. Those two words were, follow me. 
That's why the disciples left their boats and their families and they heard those two words, follow me, and they followed Jesus. It's a call to follow Jesus, our rabbi, our teacher, our saviour, and it is a call to discipleship. In this passage, Mark gives us three key concepts of what life would have looked like for a disciple. Uh, or what they should look like for a disciple. They are um, a life of faith, a life of forgiveness, and a life of fruitfulness. Three key characteristics that should be any, in every, any disciple of Jesus. And before we begin to talk about the topics of faith, forgiveness, and fruitfulness, I want to address the context of which Jesus is speaking these words. We have a biblical sandwich here. I call this a biblical sandwich, but uh, Daryl did a much more eloquent job last week. He said the ABCBA, and Pastor Ben's got a theological term for that, but I just call it a sandwich, right? Because Mark often starts a topic, then he diverts to other topics, and he returns to the original thought. And that's what we see in this passage that we're going to look at today. So here we have faith and forgiveness sandwiched between this topic of the fig tree. To put the fig tree in context, you need to understand that this passage is about a fairly monumental monumental week in the history of the world. Who knows what happened in this week? Jesus was crucified. It's a serious day and it was a profound day. And this week, Jesus pronounced a curse on the temple in Jerusalem. That curse extended beyond the temple, extended also to the religious leaders of Israel and also the people of Israel. So let me take you, it's Tuesday of Passion Week. On Saturday, Jesus arrived in the vicinity of Jerusalem at the town of Bethany, and that was, that's about two, two miles uh, east of Jerusalem. He stayed there on Saturday with his friends Mary, Martha and Lazarus, and we all know Lazarus, the one that Jesus raised from the dead. On Sunday, he remained in Bethany, and the crowds of Jews came out of the city of Jerusalem to visit him. On Monday, he enters the city of Jerusalem for the week of the Passover. Uh, And I took this picture in Jerusalem when I was there in 2019. I don't know if you can bring it up, but it's a pretty cool photo. Hey, I've got this up in my living room at home. Um, And, you know, we see the Alaska Mosque, which is to the south, and we see this gate here, which is called the Golden Gate. And that's the gate Jesus would have ridden through Uh, on the donkey, on on Palm Sunday, on what we call Palm Sunday. And to the north of that would have stood the temple. And and the Golden Gate has actually been sealed by Muslims uh, to prevent the Jewish Messiah returning. Uh, What they don't realise is that he's already entered Jerusalem on a donkey. uh, And the crowds that were... And he was proclaimed king. And who remembers on that day, the crowds proclaimed, uh, shouted out, Hosanna, Hosanna, which was to declare him king and Messiah of Israel. Doesn't matter if they seal the gate and they've, they've put a Muslim cemetery in front, in front of that gate, knowing that a Jewish rabbi would never walk through a Muslim cemetery. But when he returns, he's not even going to set his foot upon the ground. He's just going to go through <laughs> in the way that only Jesus could, right? He's just going to fly over and, and uh, take his place upon the throne in Jerusalem. Um, at the end of that day, according to verse 11 of Mark 11, he went into the temple 
and he looked around and he didn't like what he saw. You know, three years before this event, he also went into the temple and started flipping tables. Who remembers that? So this was something pretty familiar to Jesus and it was something that he was pretty passionate about. Um, So it's Tuesday now. So it takes us to where we are. We pick up where this passage kind of starts. It's Tuesday. In the morning, he and his uh, disciples are returning to Jerusalem and to the temple. At this time, he's not coming as the king of Israel. He's coming as the king of righteousness. He's coming to set things right in the temple, his father's house. In verse 12, he comes to the fig tree and seeing leaves, he expected to see some small immature figs uh, as it wasn't quite the season for figs. So when he didn't find fruit on on that tree, he cursed the fig tree. And of course, the fig tree represents Israel, the leadership and the people who didn't recognize him. Now, I wanted to pause on that point there, and we will return back to the fig tree and what it represents later in, the, later in the message, but I wanted to pause and in true Mark style talk about the topics of faith and forgiveness, which are sandwiched between this thought on the fig tree. Is that okay this morning? Why don't we go on to faith? So we'll pick up in Mark chapter 11, verses 22 and 24, to 24. These are the verses that deal with faith. So Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God, for assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. That's pretty simple, isn't it? you just got to believe, you got to pray, and you'll get whatever you want. It's that simple. But I wanted just to look at a definition in Hebrews chapter 11 for faith. And I'm sure everyone has read this. Uh, now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And that is, that's the definition. But I, as a, as a Christian and growing up, uh, trying to understand this passage, couldn't really understand how do I apply that faith to make sure that my prayers are heard and that I can receive the things that God's promised. Um, so in the Greek uh, New Testament, the word for substance is actually made up of two words. It's the word hypostasis. And hypo means to come alongside, to come by or under, or it's a firm foundation. And stasis means to stand. It just simply means to stand. So when you compound these two words together, it's the picture of a person who's determined that he will not move, that he will not surrender his position. He is determined to stand alongside the things that he has hoped for, the things that he has been promised. So it's the picture of someone who's just determined not to move. That's what faith looks like. One commentator called called it that it was a picture of a bulldog attitude. Who's who's ever had a dog or a bulldog? When you give them a bone, they've got this locked jaw, right? So if you give a a, a bulldog a bone, there is no way you're going to get that bone back off that dog. They're going to wrap their jaws around that bone and they're not letting go at any cost. That's the picture of what this word substance means. So when you take this word hypostasis 
And you find that Hebrews, you find that Hebrews 11 uh, is not just a definition, but it describes the attitude or the behaviour of faith. You can see someone's faith. Jesus said that people either had no faith, they had little faith, or they had great faith. It's reflected in their behaviour or their attitude. Think of the Syrophoenician woman. I mean, Jesus dismissed her, yet she still followed after Jesus to get her miracle. She was persistent. Or the centurion who said, don't even come to my house, just send the word and my servant will be healed. Two Gentiles, they weren't even Israelites, two Gentiles that Jesus said had great faith. Their attitude, their behaviour demonstrated their faith. In Romans 12.3 it says we've all been given a measure of faith. If you're sitting here, you've used your faith to accept Jesus as Lord. Because no one could believe that Jesus is the Son of God, our Messiah, without that measure of faith. So faith doesn't move. It's a never give up, never break, never surrender kind of faith. So faith has determined to stand by, being resolved never to move away from the things that we hope for. Who wants that kind of faith? I know I do. There are a number of, the Bible talks about a number of ways that we can build our faith. In Jude 20, it says that we can build our faith by praying in the Spirit, whether that is uh, in English or in a heavenly tongue. But we can build our faith by praying in a spiritual way. Um, the Bible also says in Romans 10, 17, that faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. That could be a podcast you listen to in your car during the week. Or it could be a message on a Sunday. Or it could be just by reading the Word of God. You're building your faith. And another, another way, a third way, is by confessing the Word. And, and this has been a bit contentious over the years, like with the Word of Faith movement and the name it and claim it and the blab it and grab it gospel. And that's not what I'm talking about. Because the more we are in the Word, the more we confess the Word, the more we build faith in our heart to receive from God. Yeah? So what is a true faith confession? And I wanted to return back to Mark eleven twenty three, just to have a look at one point that I highlighted before. For assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Here, Mark says, and does not doubt in his heart. These are the words of Jesus, right? The word doubt is the word uh, diakrino in, in, uh, in Greek. It means to differ. It means that all the words are right in your mouth. When you go to pray, you're saying all the right things. You're saying all the, you know, all the scriptures right. But it means there is a difference between your mouth and your heart. It's, and, 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 and it's not just saying the same thing. You don't just have to say those things. You've got to, um, to come in alignment with God's heart, it means you've got to feel what God feels. You've got to see it as God sees it. You've got to hear it as God hears it. You've got to come into full agreement with your heart for the things that you're believing for, for the things that God has promised you in your life. That's how you draw from from heaven's best, yeah? To bring that as a reality into into your own heart. Until 
once you start confessing it and praying it and praying it and confessing it, until your heart starts to beat in line with God's heart. And that's when God will open the doors of heaven and start to pour out those things that you're, that you're believing for. It's when your heart beats in syncopation with God's on a particular issue. And that's the power that can change situations. So when we pray, we have faith in God. We decide that we're not going to move away from the promises God's made for us in his word and that we're going to make sure that our believing lines up, uh, our words, our prayers line up with our believing, right? And I wanted just to touch on this point about what are the promises of God or what is the will of God? How do we know if what we're praying is in line with God's will and, and in line with his heart? And there's basically, it's, it's broken down roughly like this, right? So the revealed will of God are the promises that we find in his word. These are the things like God's will that all mankind shall be saved, that he will protect us from the evil one. And I even believe that he will heal us physically. I believe that's a promise of God in, that we find in the Bible. Everything Jesus did and everything Jesus said is the revealed will of God because he was the expression of God on the earth. The concealed will of God is when we don't exactly know God's will for a particular topic we're praying for. But we pray in faith, believing that those things will come to pass. Like an example I thought of is when a young person wants to pray for a spouse and you meet you meet a young woman or a young man and you start to pray. You don't know if that person is the one God has ordained for you. Those prayers usually go like this, right? Lord, she's so hot. She smells good and I really want her to be mine. What do you think, right? <laughs> but the reality is, is we don't know God's will, but we have a faith when we pray that God will make a way for that person. If it, if it, is, if it is his will to make a way for that person, that union to come together. I know for Tina and myself, we had so many hurdles in our journey of coming together that when we, we just committed it to God, there are at least five or six major hurdles that had to, had to fall in order for us to come together. We committed it to God. We prayed in faith and we just watched those hurdles fall like dominoes and that we knew that God had made a way for us to be together. That's how you know the concealed will of God and if you're in God's will for, for that particular thing that you're believing for. And sometimes when we pray, the things don't come to pass. And I know, you know, my mum in 2003, she got diagnosed with motor neurons disease, and that's a terrible disease, and systematically her body shut down. And me, uh, um, you know, I prayed so hard. Like, I don't know if I could have prayed any, any more for my mum's healing. And, and in fact, I came to faith because of that experience uh, of my mum being sick. And we went looking for Jesus, the healer, but I found Jesus the saviour. And that was, an, that was an amazing experience. But I prayed over the course of four and a half years for my mum. I fasted. I prayed. I did everything that I knew to do for her healing. And she still died. She died in 2007. But that was the will of God for my mum. Because we know that God is sovereign. That sometimes things don't turn out the way we expect, the way we hope, the way we pray, the way we believe. But God's still sovereign. And even though my mum passed away, 
I still know that God's the healer. I still know that Jesus is the healer because we can't allow our experiences to, ter- to determine our theology. Our theology has to be based on the Word of God. Otherwise, we're going to be just like ships without a rudder. We're going to be tossed around going in every which direction. Who agrees with that? We need to know, we need to base our belief on what the Word of God says. And I still believe, even though mum died and others that I've prayed, you know, for as many as you pray for, right, you've got to pray for the sick. And some will be healed and some won't. And that's up to God. You do your part. But I know that I've prayed for many people and have seen miracles come to pass. And one I was sharing with Tina the other day was, you know, I prayed for this, uh, a friend of mine, it was a surgeon, who something went wrong in the surgery. And I'm not saying I've got a, an anointing for doctors, right? I'm not saying that at all. But something went wrong in the surgery and the, the toe turned gangrenous. And they were getting ready to amputate the toe. And I was praying more for my friend to have that toe restored so he wouldn't be sued than for the lady's toe. But that would have been nice as well. And, of course, he rings me a week later and says, Mark, you'll never believe the toe has come back to life. How incredible is that? That Jesus goes before us, he goes and heals, he sees the heart, he goes and, uh, and healed a woman's toe from being amputated. And I just love that. We have to pray for the sick. Okay, so um, let's move on to the second part in Mark chapter 11, after 26, the topic of forgiveness. 25 to 26, and whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses, but if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive. Forgive your trespasses. I know what you might be thinking, Mark, that's too tough. Surely it lit- doesn't literally mean that. Well, that all I say in response to that, that's the word of God. I believe that God means what he says and he says what he means. You might be thinking, that is too steep, I cannot do that. If when you go to pray, remember that you have anything against anyone and forgive them. Yeah, but you don't know what they did to me. I don't know, but he knows. And he also knows what we did to him when he sent his son. And yet he forgave us. Think about how God forgives you. Think about the way you came to faith in Christ. When you asked him, did he forgive you? Yeah, he did. And when he forgave you, did he say, it's about time you came asking for my forgiveness? I was wondering how long it would take you. No, he just freely forgave you. Then after that, after you got born again and you messed up again, and God convicted you in your heart, and when he convicted you, you said, oh Lord, I'm so sorry, I've done that, I've tripped up again. Did he say to you, do you think I'm going to let you come back after you did this again? This is like the 10th time you've done that. Is that how God forgives us? No. He just forgives us. Doesn't matter how many times we come back seeking his forgiveness, seeking his mercy. And I'm sure we've all dropped the ball 
many, many, many times since becoming a believer. But he forgives us. And when you've been convicted of your sin and, been, and broken over it, genuinely broken over your sin and asked him for forgiveness, he's always been ready and willing to forgive us. In 1 John 1, 1.9, it says he's faithful and just to forgive, yeah? And he starts us over. And that's what we have received from God. Now, what would he like us to do for each other? And that should challenge us this morning. Because we are called to forgive like Jesus has forgiven us. A person who cannot forgive is a person who forgets how much he's been forgiven. And when I think of the topic of forgiving someone or finding it hard to forgive and in writing this message I had to forgive about 200 people of myself because we we all carry stuff yeah I always think of the parable that Jesus uh, told in Matthew 18 I wanted to read that entire parable this morning I know it's a bit long but it just makes this point beautifully and where Peter came to Jesus and asked Lord how many times shall I forgive my brother or my sister who sins against me up to seven times Up to seven times. Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began uh, the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay everything back, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him and cancelled the debt and let him go. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When he, he and the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told the master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servants in. You wicked servant, he said, I cancelled all, all that debt of yours because you begged me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owned. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brothers, your brother and sister from your heart. That's tough, but that is the word of God. This passage should challenge us. We are the ones who owed God 10,000 bags of gold. The ones who sin against us are the ones who owe us just a few silver coins. And forgiving others is not a suggestion of the Lord, but it's a command. It's a command. If we're finding it difficult to forgive someone, we need to ask ourselves... Have we really fully received the forgiveness that Jesus offers us? Are we walking right before the Lord? And that's a question we need to ask ourselves today. 
do we really know how much Jesus has forgiven us? Or are we just going through the motions of, of, of being a Christian, but we don't really know how much he's forgiven? Are we really born again if we're struggling to forgive others? And Jesus said, freely you have received, so freely you should give. And that another point, as I was talking to Tina about this last night, you know, we forgive and sometimes I think we say things flippantly in terms of our forgiveness, but that old saying that I will forgive but I won't forget. And I think that's something we need to think about because I'm guilty of this myself, right? But if we truly forgive, I think it needs to also be forgotten of what those sins that people have done against us. Because we're talking last night that what does the scripture say? The scripture says that he has removed... Hello? I think the devil doesn't want us to hear this, right? <laughs> so, or it could just be me, right? So anyway, what does the scripture say? The scripture says that he has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. That he has thrown our sins into the deepest parts of the ocean. That means that Jesus, that God, Father God, does not remember our sins. And if we come to him asking him for forgiveness, he will no longer remember. He won't say, hey, remember what you did there. I've forgiven you, but remember what you did there. That's how we need to forgive. And it means that we also need to forget what people have done to us. That when someone comes to us, we don't just go, yeah, but, you know, I've forgiven you, but I still remember. No, just forgive, buried in the depths of the ocean. And it's hard, it's a challenge, and it's a journey, and it's part of our sanctification process. But we need to keep pursuing, pursuing that, that, uh, that thought of forgiving and walking in forgiveness, because it is a command. And who knows that one day we will stand before our maker and we'll have to give an account for the things that we've done. On that thought, why don't we just close our eyes quickly and just take a moment and just think if there's anyone that you're holding anything against. You know, I heard one commentator say that unforgiveness is poison that you mean for others that you're drinking yourself. In fact, unforgiveness affects us more than it does the other person. So if we just take a moment, just think of someone that you are holding something against and just say in your heart, Lord, I forgive them. And not only that I forgive them, that I just forget what they've done to me and I hold it no longer against them. That when you leave here, you just want to walk in the freedom that comes from forgiving another person. Why don't we just quickly pray? Father, we... We bring these before you. <clears throat> Father, we just, we just release those people or that person. We don't want to remember their sins anymore, Lord God, because we know how much you've forgiven us. And we thank you for your free gift of salvation. And Father, that we pardon anyone who has come against us. And we thank you for the privilege of doing that. We thank you for the honour of serving you. And we ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Okay, fruitfulness, the third key to being a disciple of Jesus Christ. 
We're going to look at the remaining texts that we were allocated today now. And it starts back in uh, Mark eleven fifteen. So Jesus came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But we have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him. For they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teaching. When evening had come, he went out of the city. Now in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up at the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. So the fig tree, right, it's a pretty, it's a tough topic and there are many good schools of thought as to what it might be. But one popular view that I wanted to kind of address this morning is that the fig tree represents Israel and the Jewish leadership. And if it's representing Israel and the Jewish leadership, it also represents the people. And they bore no fruit for God during the time of Christ. I want to make one point here. I do not believe God, even though he's cursed the fig tree, which represents Israel, I do not believe God has done away with Israel. I believe that Israel is still very significant in God's plan for the end times. And Romans 9, 10 and 11 is a big part of what God's plan for the future of Israel is. But in this context, he's he's, uh, cursing Israel because they didn't recognise who Jesus was when he came the first time. There was a type of fig tree in Israel that bore fruit even when it wasn't the season. This tree had the form of fruiting in that it had leaves, but it was not fruitful. This was the same issue with Israel's leaders. They had a form of religion, but no fruit. As we know, the leadership of Israel and the priesthood of Israel were corrupt. Did you know that the high priesthood of Israel was just passed back and forward between Aeneas and Caiaphas? Back and forward. It was an appointment by Rome And father-in-law and son-in-law just passed it back between each other. It was that corrupt. Jesus came into the temple and started to turn, uh, overturn the tables because the leadership of Israel were extorting the people. The little children, the very ones Jesus came for, wanted to faithfully worship God in the temple. But the leadership were overcharging them for their sacrifices. Remember this is Passover week, right? So it was the law that every Jewish person had to turn up in Israel and make an offering to God. If they couldn't carry an offering, a lamb or a dove, they could buy those in the temple courts. But if you were to buy in the temple courts, you'd pay 10 times, 20 times, 100 times more than the standard price of those animals. And did you know that the proceeds of those sales went directly into the high priest's pocket. The marketplace set up in the temple was owned by the high priest. And that's why Jesus got so annoyed because they were hindering the common person, the person who loves God, from worshipping God. That's why he attacked the temple and the very heart of the Jewish faith 
And in the next section of the text, we see that Jesus held the leadership personally responsible for not recognising that he, Jesus, was in fact the Son of God and God in the flesh. Let's just read uh, the remaining section of this, of this passage uh, from 27 to 33. Then they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority? Remember, we already looked at Jesus' authority. He had authority, had his own yoke. By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? But Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you one question, then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they reasoned amongst themselves and said, if we say it was from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But if we say it was from men, they feared the people, for all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. So they answered and said to Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus answered, answered and said to them, neither will I tell you uh, by what authority I do these things. Don't you just love the way Jesus deals with these religious leaders? They were out to trap him. They were out to trap him and crucify him for blasphemy. But he demonstrated his deity in healing the man born blind in the temple. He'd already demonstrated who he was and they didn't believe him. He raised Lazarus from the dead and they didn't believe him. He'd forgiven the woman caught in the very act of adultery. And yet they refused to believe him. And I remember one preacher said, how did they know this woman was caught in the very act? Perhaps she was with one of the Pharisees, which plays to the point of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And here they were trying to trap Jesus for blasphemy, that they could execute him. But he just bats it back and stops them in their tracks. Earlier in John 8, Jesus told them exactly who he was. And if you haven't read John 8 in a while, go and read it because it's an amazing chapter. John 8, 57 to 58. Then Jesus said to them, uh, then the Jews, these are the Jewish leaders, said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham. Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus told the Pharisees that he was the I am. He proclaimed to be the voice in the burning bush. Yahweh, who appeared to Moses. And he would proclaim this again in a few days after this event in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Who remembers when they came to arrest Jesus and they said, where is Jesus of Nazareth? And what did he say? He said, I am. And a whole legion of Roman soldiers fell backwards. The very power in that name, I am. Yahweh. Jesus held the leaders of Israel responsible for not recognising who he was and for hindering the people for coming to worship God and him as Messiah. They bore no fruit. The challenge for us this morning is, for all those who call Jesus as Lord, what are you, what are you doing to bear fruit for the Lord? How are you bearing fruit for Jesus? What are you doing with the gifts and the talents that God's given you? Are you bearing them like that parable Jesus told? Or are you multiplying? 
The fruit we bear represents the impact we have on others for the kingdom of God. This can refer to bringing others to Christ, the fruit of the new birth, or the positive impact we have on those around us. Does the fruit of the Spirit pour out of you? If you're a born-again believer, Spirit-filled, you should have the fruit of the Spirit pouring out of you. Do you love like Christ loves? Do you have joy and peace or are you one of these Christians that just mope around Monday to Saturday and come to church on a Sunday and know all the right hand movements and know all the words of the songs, but the joy and the peace of Christ doesn't flow out of you? Are we patient and kind with those around us? You know, it's always a sign when you go to, to, out to a restaurant with Christians and how they just interact with people, how they interact with those servers or those... Do we have that, that peace and that patience flowing out of us the same way that Jesus would interact with people? Do we interact with people that same way? Are we faithful and gentle? If we say, if we give our word that we're going to go be somewhere, are we faithful? Are we gentle in the way we address those around us? Do we, de- do, um, we demonstrate the fruit of self-control? And that's one I struggle with, right? The fruit of self-control. But that's a big one. We tend to like kind of not read the full verse because that's the last one. Are we controlled? Are we measured in the way that we interact, that we do things for Christ, that we pray that we read our Bible, self-control, yeah? Or do we just come here on a Sunday, do our duty and go back into the world? No, my friends, we need to bear fruit for him because one day we will be held to account. One day he will say, what did you do with that talent that I gave you? Did you bury it in the sand? Or did you multiply it for him? Here, Lord, here's the one talent you gave me. Here's the one I have for you. Here's the five you gave me. Here's the five I have back for you. What are you doing to build his kingdom? What are you doing to build his people? What are you doing to bless his people? Because I know, I don't know about you, but I know I want to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant one day. It's not a given. Because read that passage in context. Well done, good and faithful servant for fruitfulness, for what you have done to being fruitful for the Lord. The call to following, and yes, we're looking at discipleship today, the call to being a true disciple of Jesus, dear friends, is to love, is to live a life of faith, to live a life of forgiveness and to live a life of fruitfulness. You know, this morning... If any of those three points, a life of faith, a life of forgiveness or a life of fruitfulness, if you're just saying, I'm not quite where I need to be, I'm not quite doing the things that I know God's called me to do, I'm not doing the things that I know that he's asked of me, why don't we all stand this morning and let's just pray and let's just get right with God and let's just ask for the power of God to fill us this morning. And we want to be fruitful for him. We want to bear a harvest for him. We want to make sure that we stand before him one day and we hear those wonderful words, well done, good and faithful servant. And, and you know, we're here, Pastor Bin's here, 
Simon's here, the, the leaders are here. If you just want to come forward, take that step of faith and say, Lord, I haven't been walking right with you. I haven't lived a life of faith. I've, I haven't lived a life of forgiveness. I haven't lived a life of fruitfulness. And I want to just draw a line in the sand today, 6th of November, to give my heart back to the Lord and start again. And we heard this morning that He is always faithful and just to forgive. He will start us afresh. Just be bold this morning and just come forward so that as an act of surrender, as an act of faith, that uh, you want to restart your journey with God this morning. And let's just pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be a disciple. We thank you that we have, uh, that we just follow the most beautiful rabbi, the most beautiful teacher, the most beautiful Lord. And we thank you, Lord, that you just, we just ask you to fill us with your faith. Lord, we just want to walk in forgiveness and we just want to be fruitful for you. That we want to see many, uh, many people come to you. That we want to see your kingdom built up so that when you come one day, Lord, that you've got a beautiful bride waiting for you. And we thank you, Father, for the privilege and the honour to serve you. And we give you glory and honour and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.